podcasting from Southern Minnesota's best-kept secret, you've found Green Pastures with Jesus, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church in friendly Fairmont, Minnesota. We'd like to be your daily home for a few minutes with Jesus as we spend some time together in the green pastures of His Word. I'm your host, Pastor Peter Hagen, and today is What Does This Mean Wednesday? In this occasional segment, you'll hear some interviews or a closer look at a particular teaching, maybe some history and context behind a hymn, or an answer to any of our listeners' questions. Of course, you can send those to me, Pastor Peter Hagen, at pastorhagen at icloud.com, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at icloud.com. All links are in the show notes or at our website, www.shepherdofthelakes.net. Now let's get to today's show. Today we've got part three of our look at the influence of monasticism on Luther's life and theology. The parallels for today. Here goes. Pastor, I just don't know. We always went to church and took them to Sunday school. We did everything. Whether the focus is on speaking in tongues or conquering a pet sin, evangelical Christianity regards these human actions as a demonstration of God's reality in the human experience. In our subjective age, the attraction of this brand of Christianity can hardly be underestimated. From Harold Senkbile's book, Sanctification. Studying church history provides a number of benefits, such as examining the application of scriptural principles in times gone by, or understanding how a church body came to practice and emphasize particular doctrines or practices. Perhaps a particular benefit of studying the life of Luther is seeing how specific spiritual realities, such as law and gospel, conscience and guilt, whether actual warranted guilt or only the perceived guilt of feelings, False doctrine and true doctrine impact a person's emotions and life. What could Luther's monastic experience have to do with us today? I propose that, while we are not laboring under the false doctrine of Roman Catholicism, we, who know, understand, and and enjoy the freedom we have in Christ, we are at the same time tempted by false doctrine and poor practice in other garb, or poor doctrine and false practice. Our motives are that more people may come into contact with the Word of God. Our greatest hope is that people may hear the Scriptures, believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name. But ministering to a culture that is constantly cruising the Internet, ministering among people who are regularly in contact with other Christians who seem more Christian than I, Ministering in a time that wants to dismiss doctrine in favor of ecumenical fellowship and a we're-all-in-this-together attitude, we risk losing the lessons of Luther's theological history, much like the young people raised in Wells' homes, even confirmed in Wells' churches, who then go on to attend the hipper, younger, exhilarating, emotionally moving, exciting evangelical church that seems to be more attractive and applicable to everyday life, or at least more worthy of a Sunday morning hour. And the Lutheran, recognizing the approachable preacher in skinny jeans, rumpled button-down, and facial scruff, might begin to wonder, what is it they have that I don't? What is it they do that we don't? What tweak or change would divert some of that stream of listeners to my church and away from that false doctrine? And... 
at Pastors Conference, which is our Synod's forum for in-depth pastoral discussion of doctrine and practice. Is there anything of value that we can learn, should use, or might adopt from these non-Lutheran Protestants? Footnote number 31. Despite what St. Augustine had said, I am hesitant to speak of plundering the Egyptians. We are not Israel, nor has God made our captors favorably disposed toward us, so that they offload their wealth upon us. But first, let me clarify the connection with Luther's monasticism. Professor Deutschlander says, For us and for our forefathers, the three compelling and identifying marks of all heresy, of all false doctrine, is this. False doctrine, number one, contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Number two, robs Christ of his glory. And number three, deprives the stubborn sinner of salutary warning and the penitent sinner of needed comfort. From his dogmatics text, Grace Abounds. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus did not accomplish a full and complete atonement, and that his death on the cross did not deal with the full penalty of man's sin. The death and resurrection merited grace for man, which is then channeled to the individual through the Roman Catholic Church's sacraments. This grace, doled out like coins, rather than an objective status in God's eyes, this grace enables man to do works of righteousness in order to earn God's justification and eternal life. Among non-Lutheran Protestants who have no sacramental system, and that's important, the end result is the same doubt. Where do I really stand with God? But the questions are predominantly related to lifestyle and action. How do I know I am a Christian? Am I truly reborn? How do I demonstrate that I am one of God's elect to salvation and not elect to damnation, if you are a true Calvinist? How will I attain the baptism of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues, as a Pentecostal might ask? In Roman Catholicism, the doubt lay on God's side. Was it really complete? Did God do everything? The Roman Catholic answer is no, God did not, and it's up to you to do the rest. In mainstream Protestantism, the question lay on my side. How do I know that I am really in God's good graces? Yes, Jesus did this. Jesus died and rose to take away sin. But how am I sure that I am one of God's elect to salvation? Or how do I know that I am truly a Christian? And the answer is found in the same place. The doubt is answered by my own deeds, my own works. But no matter the doctrinal emphasis of the question, the question remains one of behavior and personal action. The Christian is imbued with doubt, as is the necessity of living out Christian principles and morals. Is this doubt resolved at church? Hardly. Generally speaking, mainstream American Christianity teaches what has been called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's kind of five points, generally speaking. That God created the world, and God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about myself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when we need God to solve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. 
basically, be a good person, because God loves you. From Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. And as Pastor Harold Senkbeil demonstrates in his book, Sanctification, the lack of dogmatic teaching about God doesn't really matter. He says, A more useful unifying principle lies not in the doctrine of evangelicalism, but in its practice. To be an evangelical in America today is largely a question of mindset and personal piety. Evangelical identity is established more on the basis of which books are read, which religious terms are laced into conversation, and which language is used in public prayer, than on which specific doctrines are believed. Evangelical Christianity is not a religious organization. Evangelical Christianity, um, we're talking about non-Lutheran, non-Catholic Christians. It is not primarily a theological system. It's more of a mood, a perspective, and an experience. It is easy to see that what has developed under the guise of the practice of the Christian faith borders on a new monasticism. In other words, doctrine doesn't matter. I cannot emphasize that enough. To your non-Catholic, non-Lutheran friends, doctrine doesn't matter. What you believe or teach doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how I feel about myself and my faith, my walk with God, my relationship with God, and my good deeds, which, even those deeds are not measured by the objective word of God, but by my own ideas about love and God and God's demands, as those demands are formed and shaped and influenced by the culture around me, they can change. Point 35, footnote number 35. Correct or not, I use the term evangelicalism here to refer to any non-Lutheran Protestant, whether Arminian, Baptist, Calvinist, ELCA, Reformed, Community Church, United Methodist, Presbyterian, Evangelical Free, any combination thereof. To me, they all seem to be different mixes of the same wrong teachings. Every single Lutheran doctrine referred to above is twisted and deformed among these non-Lutheran Protestants. The doctrines of original sin, justification, the means of grace, vocation and good works, and the theology of the cross. We believe doctrine, and we have been taught dogmatic structure based upon the original languages. If you have ever felt like you and an evangelical are talking past one another, that's absolutely no surprise. You're talking blueprints. They're thinking interior design. Blueprints has scripture as the basis for our faith. Interior design has the building and structures assumed, but just needs some refreshing, updating, color change, a change in style. The focus on style over doctrine was especially well adapted to the TV era, and now is well adapted to the era of smartphones and Facebooks. The charismatic movement's vertical postures, its elimination of time and space, the connotation of immediate, without means, communion with God, what I feel in my heart, God speaking to me. The unity between God and people and the emotional experience all reflect a TV culture, and one might say, internet culture, 
instant, spontaneous, subjective, and emotional. Here the real danger is that the medium becomes the message. The mainstream evangelicals seem to have the corner on captivating graphics, inspirational videos, Christian retreat centers, couples ministries, popular Christian music, financial seminars, apps, and YouTube hits. The insurance company Thrivent Financial, formerly Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, makes its funds available for any charitable organization as long as Thrivent gets the photos and the rights to reprint those photos however they see fit. We've got a flurry of footnotes here, number 37, 38, 39, 40, and 41. Here goes. Couples Ministries or any other entrepreneurial endeavor started as a book or ministry devoid of calling body or doctrinal oversight. There is an uncountable number of entrepreneurs hawking church solutions online. Everything from donation services, music services, planning and programming modules, leadership training, to facility construction, Bible studies, and nearly every potential avenue for either bringing in dollars or people. In proper Lutheran theology, we reserve the term ministry for using word and or sacrament in a public setting and called to that location, called to that setting, called to that ministry by a calling body. And as a member of a wider community of faith that has doctrinal oversight. So for instance, um, I, Pastor Hagen, have been called to serve the public ministry of Shepherd of the Lakes, the calling body is the congregation, Shepherd of the Lakes. The wider community of faith is the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, um, the Minnesota District, and we are members of the Minnesota River Valley South District. So in that order, then, in reverse order, those who have doctrinal oversight over me, um, first of all, the congregation, and then the circuit pastor, uh, currently Jeff Beauvais up in New Ulm, and then our district president, Pastor Charlie Degner at St. Peter in St. Peter, Minnesota, and eventually um, the Conference of Presidents and President Schrader, the president of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, as well as the Synod when it meets in convention. So there are multiple layers of oversight, and if any of those layers <laughs> happens to fail, then those next up the chain can take action, with final authoritative action resting in the hands of the Synod when it meets at convention during the summertime every other year. Footnote number 38. Financial Seminars. Dave Ramsey certainly has name recognition, but his theology and practice are evangelical through and through, and I don't mean that in a good sense. Do this for you, so that God will bless you and you can give back to God at the end. I listened to his Financial Peace University CDs before marriage, and I didn't realize how entirely different the Lutheran approach is until our congregation hosted Pastor Mike Dietz for Heart in Focus. Heart in Focus is a Lutheran revision, one might say, of Financial Peace University, because Dave Ramsey's material is pretty solid on the financial front, but it's upside down and backwards, and it doesn't address the real issue of the heart. Uh, point Footnote number 39 
talking about apps, uh, applications for your smartphone. Paul David Tripp Ministries, a 501c3 organization, that is a nonprofit organization, has its own app where one can listen to his teachings at any time. This fits his ministry style as he speaks at venues across the country, not to my knowledge, at a regular church location. Paul David Tripp is a certified Calvinist through and through. And YouTube hits. According to one list of the top Christian YouTube channels from November 2016, the top three Christian channels, Jefferson Bethke of the I Hate Religion But I Love Jesus fame from five years ago, Blimey Cow, and Sid Roth's It's Supernatural account for 1.6 million subscribers. The I Hate Religion But I Love Jesus video alone has has had over 32 million views and was well answered by Pastor Jonathan Fisk in his Jesus Equals Religion video, which only garnered about 40,000 hits. And finally, Thrivent. Our congregation generally uses Thrivent funds for above and beyond or new and non-budgeted tasks that happen within our congregation and at our church property. Last summer, there was a question for using perhaps $250 from Thrivent to buy candy for the local parade, but that would entail wearing the shirts, advertising for an insurance company, rather than encouraging the name recognition for our congregation. I was doubly glad that we didn't use their money, since two other churches in town, both non-Lutheran Protestant, wore their Thrivent shirts. Would that have been a perceived union? The shirts aren't obviously thriventy, but rather appear as a living, loving statement of lifestyle faith. Live generously, heart. I'll read that entire paragraph once more to tie it all together. The mainstream evangelicals seem to have the corner on captivating graphics, inspirational videos, Christian retreat centers, couples ministries, popular Christian music, financial seminars, apps, and YouTube hits. The insurance company Thrivent Financial, formerly Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, makes its funds available for any charitable organization as long as they get the videos and the rights and photos to reprint and the rights to reprint those photos however they see fit. The danger lies not so much in what is blatantly said, but in what is left unsaid. One might have to scroll through most of a statement of belief, which sounds pretty good, before seeing a reference to the ordinances we must we must keep, or even the complete omission of any reference to the sacraments. The error is usually not immediately evident in an inspirational Facebook meme, but the wider context will undoubtedly show the error, betraying the theology that is predicated on human action. Is this a resurgence of crypto-Calvinism? What would the formulators of the formula of Concord say to us who might seek to use what is profitable while sifting out the chaff? I'm not advocating a return to the pre-internet age, as the internet provides wonderful opportunities for teaching, and we ought to strive to use all the gifts of God's people. But consider the formula of Concord, Article 10. 
We believe, teach, and confess that at a time of confession, when the enemies of God's word want to suppress the pure doctrine of the Holy Gospel, God's entire church is bound by God's word to confess the doctrine freely and openly. They are bound to confess every aspect of pure religion, not only in words, but also in works and actions. In this case, even in Adiaphora, they must not yield to the adversaries or permit these Adiaphora to be forced on them by their enemies, whether by violence or cunning, to the detriment of the true worship of God and the introduction and the sanction of idolatry. The danger grows larger when Lutherans forget the tremendous treasure of our doctrine. Our doctrine may even be seen as the enemy, as though our teaching, our practice, or our emphasis on doctrine and the sacraments is what hinders church growth. Perhaps of elements of doctrine can be, come to be seen as obligation. We would fill in the blank faster, experience more, fill in the blank, reach blank, if we didn't have our practice of blank, for example. We would grow faster, experience more success, reach more people, if only we didn't have our practice of closed communion. Footnote number 42, the idea of obligation. I would love to do blank or attend blank, but I can't, or I need to downplay it and not mention it too loudly, because fellowship, hashtag eye roll. Yes, the past few paragraphs may have been a bit of caricature and hyperbole, but to fill in that last blank with fellowship and tell me you've never encountered such thoughts or temptation within your own mind, life, or ministry, doubly so for the people we serve. Footnote number 43. Consider Pastor Seth Bode's comment in our Zale Zorger Facebook group for active and retired CELC pastors on the topic of fellowship. Pastor Bodhi said, I would also note that the reason many Wells people have confusion about our practice of fellowship is because they don't always perceive a difference in doctrine, either since they A. don't want to get too deep, or B. view doctrine through what is practiced. The fact that practice implies and affects doctrine is a logical, logical conclusion that our members, let alone our pastors, cannot avoid. If we were to consider only the Lutheran doctrines mentioned above, the picture may become clearer. We would not quickly deny any of these teachings, but given the apparent numerical success of the evangelicals and the sideways comments about Lutheran liturgical worship, what if we just do a little bit of what they do, and do just a little bit less of some of the more unavoidably confrontational Lutheran things? Again, Harold Sinkbile. To many outsiders, for that matter, to many of its own members, the Lutheran Church appears to be hopelessly out of step with our world and out of tune with our age. Lutheranism is assumed to be incapable of meeting the real needs of our world today without a major overhaul. Most versions of overhaul to Lutheranism look very much like the brand of Christianity that goes today under the heading of Evangelical. I planned a thesis that would analyze the appeal of evangelical Christianity and identify the ballast Lutherans needed to throw overboard. Instead, I came to see the great strengths of our incarnational sacramental heritage in meeting this very challenge.
Moreover, the world of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are prime platforms for captivating graphics and condensed quips, exhortations, and thoughts that one is encouraged to share with others. These platforms do not readily receive less than excellent graphics or cinematography, nor are they particularly geared toward an extended discussion, yet discussion of precise doctrinal points often takes more than 20 words, and who of us has the time, talent, and resources to produce excellent videos? Footnotes numbers 45 and 46. Time of Grace has been producing a daily video utilizing a number of pastors from across our synod. They are very good cinematography and usually start with a felt need of some sort, which seems to work as a hook. The challenge is to quickly move into deep Lutheran theology discussion and application. And that's where a blog or a podcast might serve well, a long-form way for people to consume content visually in a blog or in an audio-format podcast on the go. I will briefly consider the five doctrinal high points mentioned above, with notes or questions about each. Number one, original sin, conscience, natural knowledge of God. This is where all preaching of God's law leads. The conscience bears witness, accusing or defending, while the root of the tree is rotten from the start. Every Christian in the pew knows what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7, and he has heard the accusations of his or her own conscience. The fact that original sin still exists within Christians clearly ties in with the theology of the cross, and really militates against every evangelical effort at simply telling people to straighten out their lives with a set of quote-unquote Christian principles for the encouragement to David up. This tendency of self-improvement is evident in nearly nearly every encouragement that would be just at home in the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. Footnote number 47 about quote-unquote Christian principles. What in the world makes a principle uniquely Christian? A principle is a guideline, a rule, or a norm. This term seems to trace directly back to lifestyle Christianity, which denies original sin and is only concerned with the set of rules that I need to follow in order to retain my self-appointed Christian status. Michael Horton here, a quote from Christless Christianity. The creedal, objective, and historical faith of traditional Christianity could not be translated into purely subjective terms. However, precisely because American religion has long cherished its opposition to more traditional forms of Christianity in favor of the sovereign inner experience of the individual, it not only survives, but thrives in the atmosphere of this secularizing process. As a result, religious speech becomes assimilated to the pragmatic rationality of rules, steps, techniques, and programs for personal transformation and well-being. Here I note that a few evangelical voices have served as the loudest critics of elements of non-Lutheran Protestant lifestyle theology. And Augsburg Confession, Article 2. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merits and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. 
could someone truly preach biblical sanctification without a proper knowledge of the depth of our depravity and a proper knowledge of the totality of Christ's redemption? Points number two and three, justification as a completed fact and received fully through faith apart from works and the means of grace as the only tools by which God has promised to speak with his people or communicate forgiveness to them and that God actually effectively does this. The pietism, subjective, emotion-based mysticism that characterizes mainstream evangelicalism cares nothing about a completed and fully accomplished forgiveness. It's all a matter of feelings. If I feel it, if I feel like it, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, because I have this feeling, and this feeling is true. And how dare anyone contradict my feelings? If I feel forgiven, I am forgiven. If my life shows success, God must be smiling upon me and think the world of me. And why not? Because I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? Note the theology of glory again. Never mind what the Bible says, especially when so much of it is commands that are so out of touch. I don't really need to read it, because I've got this personal relationship with God. And every little event of the day can then be interpreted as evidence of God's goodness or of my standing within God's favor. By chance, I didn't immediately go when the light turned green, and God saved me from being broadsided. I was sick on Saturday and didn't go to the store, but lo and behold, the item I wanted was on sale on Sunday. That's a God thing. Hashtag blessed. Could we really leave the sacraments out of our worship without thereby denying their efficacy and necessity? What good motive would excuse condoning false doctrine or false belief? To be sure, from Pastor Deutschlander, his Grace Abounds text. To be sure, not all man-made religions descend into the depths of depravity described in Romans chapter 1. Some religions may enforce an outwardly rigorous moral standard. Monasticism and asceticism, both ancient and present day, have something of that attitude in them. If drunkenness is a sin... Make all drinking a sin, so that drunkenness will be impossible. If greed is evil, make poverty a virtue, or make economic equality a religious goal, so that the possibility of getting rich is eliminated. All man-made religions, therefore, are essentially anthropocentric, putting man-humans at the center. They make man the ultimate measure of truth, and even of the definition of God. Points 4 and 5. Vocation and the role of good works. We do not have the freedom to choose or live in a way that contradicts the revealed word of God. At the same time, as a Christian, every God-pleasing vocation is an opportunity to worship God and serve neighbor with love and good deeds. And point 5. The theology of the cross. God's glory is a hidden glory revealed most clearly at Calvary. This life is characterized by the cross. God's favor cannot be determined by external circumstances. Let me repeat that. God's favor, the fact that God is smiling upon you today, cannot be determined 
from looking at your own life or examining your own feelings. God's favor and the fact that God smiles upon you, has forgiven you, has promised you a place in heaven. God's favor is found only in the Word of God, where you see the empty tomb of Christ guaranteeing your forgiveness. God says, this was for you. Believe it. You see, good works are not our work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through us. The people in the pew don't need a checklist of principles for this next week. Nor are our good works us doing God a favor. Rather, good works are the joyful expression of a reconciled heart, a heart that knows what God thinks of me, even if, and especially when, my emotions tell me otherwise. Lutheran preaching doesn't just preach Jesus soon enough. It proclaims Jesus through and through. Paul's preaching of sanctification is really about Jesus. As one author put it, the theology of glory assumes a fix-it God in a fixer-upper cosmos. All we need is some rehab and renovation, straighten up our morals with ten handy commandments, get our doctrinal ducks in a row, tighten those spiritual quads and abs with some liturgical aerobics, and we poor sinners are on our way to glory. But that way of thinking is dead wrong from the outset. We are not broken down, but dead in sin. We can't be rehabbed any more than the dead can be raised with an aspirin and a bandage. We don't need rehab, but resurrection. If one were looking for a more comprehensive list of preaching doctrines or topics, check out the appendix for a citation from Apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article 15. The doctrines listed above are readily available in word and worship, woven throughout our doctrine and practice, and displayed freely in the life of Luther. We conclude with a few practical tips. Number one, preach object of justification plus the reality of the Spirit's work only through His chosen means. That is to say, you have been reconciled to God simply by being part of the world, and this reconciliation is made yours through the word and sacrament. Number two, consider ways to give the sacraments a more prominent place in church life. Do you have once a month Holy Communion? Try it twice. Do you have it twice? Maybe first, third, and fifth Sundays and festivals. Celebrate baptism with a cake or a gift from the church. This rebirth is even more important than the first birth, which was probably celebrated with a baby shower. Address, point three, address and discuss in sermon or Bob class, emotions, emotionalism, and the alluring appeal of a lifestyle Christianity, which deserts the word of God and leaves the sinner alone with his fallen reason and the natural knowledge of God. We need an apologetic that addresses these issues. Point four. Strive to make every worship service an example of excellence in Lutheran worship. This also means that we make use of the confessional mindset as we approach and choose rites or music. Not only do these words testify to the truth, but also what is left out left to assumption, or is not uniquely, remarkably, identifiably Christian here. Point five. Consider promoting proper, private confession and absolution. 
face to face with my sin privately with my called overseer, and this sin is addressed with true forgiveness and the real Jesus through the Word. Point six. Run a questions people ask Bible study, where you solicit questions from the congregation. Many of these will pertain to fellowship or men and women roles and the like, but these major questions and doctrines provide a special opportunity to show God's grace to us. Point seven. Find a good website provider. I personally found Final Web far too difficult, dated, and unresponsive to be practical. We switched to Squarespace, which has worked out well and is very user-friendly. 24-hour online tech support is a lifesaver, and the sites are automatically mobile-friendly. Point eight. Start a podcast or YouTube channel for your congregation and community, assuming you already have a MailChimp weekly email. Promise only one or two in-depth episodes a week. Keep the YouTube stuff short Definitely less than five minutes. Just hit a topic and move on. Point nine. Encourage excellent hymnody. Because solid doctrinal hymns proclaim and teach the truth while not looking to emotion to manipulate people into believing things, while also at the same time allowing the doctrine and the belief to speak for itself with the proper emotional effect in its proper location. Point 10. Maybe it was just me, but does every young man or young pastor think that the non-Lutheran Protestants have something figured out that we don't? Pastor Sankbeil confessed that same thought in his book. Let's find a way to discuss the American church culture in which we work and worship so that the youthful, enthusiastic pastors don't get carried away with Arminian Baptist Calvinistic theology, no matter how appealing its graphics or programming, and so that we can encourage one another in using the current technology to serve our congregations. And to that end, perhaps a good note about bulletins and general church communications. Find a unified style and font for your bulletin and publications that fits, you know, whether you're in a traditional context or a somewhat more modern context, a serif or a sans serif font, and something that looks professional, not just resorting to the same half a dozen um, overused MS Word fonts, but something a little bit different and unique and fitting. There are definitely other options and ideas, but the main idea is this. Lifestyle Christianity, quote-unquote, as promoted by nearly every Christian church in America, denies every element of Lutheranism. It is a theology of glory which puts far too much guilt and stress on its adherents, typically also getting up in minor point getting caught up in minor points of doctrine after already missing the main points. Have you ever been stressed out trying to determine who the Antichrist is or when Christ's millennial reign will actually begin? These people are. We need to be aware of their teaching and crush those stress points with the reality of God's law. It's okay to use the law in that way. Point number 51. Mark Kares' book, Speaking the Truth and Love to Mormons, does an excellent job teaching this point and is wonderfully helpful 
even apart from a Mormon context. God's law will speak the truth, and God's gospel will as well. And when someone's theology doesn't really, you know, has a weak point, then God's law ought to reveal that. We have people coming to us from these other church bodies. They have been through the ringer hurt and abused, certainly spiritually abused. We owe to them to be the different church that they expect. Point 52. One of the more saddening elements in recent time was a couple who came to us from an evangelical free church. I would say, by and large, those churches are neither evangelical nor free. They came every Sunday for about two months, but eventually the man said, I like the people, the building is nice, I love the preaching, but I just can't do the worship. Fed on upbeat emotionalism, the change in style didn't resonate. I wish I knew then what I know now. The yardstick for his Christianity is his feeling and his self-taught sense of how well he lives. The doctrines to which we cling are revealed in hymns we sing. Are yours preaching Christ or me, me, me? I have no one to sing and chant about but Christ, in whom alone I have everything. Martin Luther Yes. As far as music goes, I'm not advocating that we absolutely ditch everything written after or before a certain year. Excellent hymn writing and music can be found in every age, and we need to encourage excellent hymnody. At the same time, we need to evaluate everything only, not only on the basis of scripture, but also on the basis of theology of origin. As much of the material, especially music, graphics, and video, this material available today quietly dismisses the means of grace to say nothing of original sin, completed justification, or the theology of the cross. Every element of our doctrine provides another opportunity to proclaim the objective freedom we have in Christ, especially when that doctrine seems most neglected, most offensive to human reason, most out of step with the culture. The way we practice our doctrine is a proclamation of what we believe, and our practices will definitely shape the faith in practice of our people. All that to say, we are at war. Satan wants eyes turned away from Christ by any means possible. Emotion is powerful, and the perceived burden or perceived inability of Lutheran theology to reach today's culture is a powerful lever for prying God's people away from the God-given means of grace, or vice versa, to pry the means of grace away from God's people. But that temptation is nothing new. Martin Luther was told that his preaching would destroy the church and that he ought to recant for the sake of unity. So let us be end where we began. Luther's monastic experience was part and parcel of his later theology. That later theology was found in the Word of God as he studied and lectured at the University of Wittenberg. His previous experience had shown him just how shoddy the Roman Catholic teaching was and exactly how precious this new freedom was. May we, who know this freedom, perhaps even grew up in this freedom, not dismiss this freedom as a bygone relic of an out-of-step church, but rather as the treasure which alone can cure and comfort sin-sick souls. Quote from Dr. Wade Johnston to conclude us today. Justification is not another article in the Confessions. Justification is intimately connected to all of them. We do well to remember that. 
That was the message of the Heidelberg Dis- Disputation and the Bondage of the Will. That is part and parcel of true Lutheran identity. Doctrine is not a pizza pie made up of slices. Doctrine is a unity, a totality. That is why our confessions more often than not speak of doctrine rather than doctrines. Christ is the center of all we believe and teach, like the rays of the sun. All we believe and teach emanates from him, or is not of him at all, and therefore unchristian. The same is also true of the relationship between doctrine and practice. Practice confesses doctrine. It shows what we believe and teach. It makes clear how we think God does his work. It showcases his word or distracts it from it. It trusts preaching word and sacrament to do its work, or it doesn't. As with Abraham and the promise of a son, God's promise does not need any helping along, just as our will doesn't need a smudge of nudging in the right direction. God's promise is sufficient, and it alone can take the sinful will captive, can take the reins from the devil. This is not one aspect of Lutheran doctrine. This is fundamental to Lutheran teaching, critical to a proper Christian understanding of the scriptures as a whole and at their most basic. From Dr. Wade Johnston, Lutheranism's First Identity Crisis. And that concludes part three of our look at Luther and monasticism. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll probably upload them all right in a row if you'd like to listen to them in order to each other. God bless your day. Jerusalem, the Thanks for listening to Green Pastures with Jesus, the audio home of Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church of Fairmont, Minnesota. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our website, www.shepherdofthelakes.net. Pass that along to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section at our website for previous podcasts. You can find us 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings at 323 East 1st Street in Fairmont, just up the hill from Richard's Towing. Any questions, contact me, Pastor Hagen, 507-236-9572. God bless your day.